Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Tone Bays, former risk manager on Wall Street, Bitcoin trader, and YouTube star. We talk about risk modeling, why the economy keeps having giant shock events like 2008, and how groupthink naturally leads to higher risk. Tone also tells us why Bitcoin belongs in your portfolio, but not all coins, and why he's so passionate about Bitcoin education. Tone is one of the most authentic people I know in Bitcoin. He's obviously very passionate, but he also knows his stuff. He's learned a lot over the years and is really into diversification at both the portfolio and life level. His analysis of how risk multiplies through groupthink was eye-opening to me and shows why the current system continues to be fragile. Enjoy the interview. Tone Vase, how's everything going? Excellent. How about you, Jimmy? It's been a while. I know I've been very MIA over the last <laughs> six months. I mean, this COVID really did a number on my mental state. So I've been out of the yeah. US all year and I'm actually happy again. <laughs> so COVID has been for you kind of crazy, huh? Yeah, yeah. It hasn't really like it's just a giant frustration over the way a government has been treating people during COVID. And it's just so sad. Yeah. How is it where you are right now? So I'm in Dubai. I've been here over a month. And I don't know. It's like you can go out. You can have fun. But at the same time, you know, they do. They are, you know, vaccinating everyone. And I'm not really big into the vaccines. So uh, there's really no perfect place in the world. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, indeed not. So I brought you on the show because I do feel like you've been in this space for a while, but I wanted to give my audience like a sense of where you came from. So what were you doing before you got into Bitcoin? So right before I got into Bitcoin, I was working on Wall Street doing risk modeling. So we were building risk models for hedge funds. I started doing that in late 2006, early 2007, around that time where I got my first job. And then I stuck around that industry through about four companies on Wall Street. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and what what did you do as a risk analyst? So, oh man, so I was helping build the risk models. So mm. in one of the jobs, for example, I would be responsible for all the data that goes into a model and making sure that the output, you know, test the output. And this was a monthly risk analysis model. So that means that it takes like two or three days to run the risk engine to process the models. And then the rest of the month is spent by a team of 30 financial analysts using these models throughout the month to analyze hedge fund positions on a month-end basis. So besides the three to four days that I'm spending generating all of these models and prior to doing that, I have to validate all the data. I'm responsible for all the data feeds. So I'm working with Bloomberg. I'm working with, with Reuters uh, to get accurate historical data for thousands of assets that are going through the model. I got to make sure that the output is accurate because if I screw that part up, 
and like three days into all the finance guys running the models, if I have to say, um, guys, I screwed up, I just cost like an entire office, <laughs> you know, a week of work, basically. And they now have less time to generate. They now have 20 days to get all of their results instead of 25 or 26 days. So though those, the, I mean, it's just, you know, very important job. And so during the month when I'm not doing the rest of the month that I'm not generating the model, I'm basically responsible for all communication uh, between the financial analysts and the developers and the quants that built those models. So if a CFA guy uh, runs the risk of, say, Apple stock, and the risk of Apple stock comes back questionable, he emails me and says there is a problem with the risk of Apple stock. And now I have to get involved and figure out where this problem is. Usually the problem is the risk, the CFA guy, you know, doesn't know what he's doing, which usually happens if it's a newish employee, been there only a year or less. If like the last email that I want to see in my box is like the manager of the CFA guys telling me that there's a problem with risk of an asset because I know they know what they're doing. So sometimes it's just, you know, the guy on that end doesn't understand what the risk is. Doesn't usually happen in the case of Apple stock, but does happen if someone is, let's say, short a call option. Because if you're short a call option, technically your risk is unlimited. So even if you have a portfolio with a thousand positions and two of those positions are short calls on Tesla, all of a sudden the portfolio's risk can go through the roof because historical analysis of Tesla can show that the stock could go 10x in a day. And if you're short call options with no hedging, that can destroy your entire fund. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that could set a new a financial guy that isn't very experienced going, hey, yeah, last month this portfolio only had very small risk. And why the hell is it so risky this time around? And the answer is, well, because some idiot at their desk decided to do a, you know, to go short a call option with unlimited risk that can destroy your entire fund. So if the problem is not the person that, if the problem is not, you know, person's understanding of risk, uh, the next most likely candidate is input data. Uh, because before they run the risk of an asset, they have to input the terms of that asset. Again, going back to that position, if someone inputted, you know, that the call option is short, when they should have inputted that the call option was long instead of short, then the risk profile is obviously very, very different. So the other part is, was the data entered correctly? Again, not a big problem for something like options on equities. They're pretty simple. Equities themselves, pretty simple. For a bond, for example, well, is the interest rate of the bond in percents or in decimals? Because if you screw that up, obviously there is a problem. So the other part is making sure that they entered their inputs correctly. The third most likely candidate is the input, the, the historical data in our database is off or not there properly. And if all of that is correct, now I got to figure out the technology side of it. Is it a problem on the database side, not aggregating correctly? Is it a problem on the front end of not displaying it correctly? Is it a problem with the C++ code 
is that malfunctioning? So I do have the ability to read code, less so today, better back then. And the worst case scenario is the model was off. That is very rare because I don't really want to tell a quant that his model was wrong. And my expertise is really in coding Excel VBA. So all of these, you know, 20 different risk models across all assets, I kind of have the bootleg version of them coded in VBA so that I can at least <laughs> somewhat check if the model is somewhat uh, in the same hemisphere of results. So that's kind of my job to figure out where the problem is and then explain the problem or go to the right developer of the right team and assign them the task of doing it. And besides that job, I also have the responsibility of being a middleman when new functionality is needed. So when the CFA guys need new functionality, it goes through me to write a spec for the dev team. And then I got to check that, what the, what the output is. And then I got to educate the CFA guys on how to use the new functionality. And at first I was doing that job by myself. And then obviously as the company grew, I had people under me. So that's basically it. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm basically that guy in office space that can't really explain what the hell he does, but he's really, really important because he takes the specs <laughs> from the engineers and brings them down to another office. But yeah, and then when our company got sold to a competitor and the, the deal got botched quite a bit, all the senior management waited for their bonuses and quit. And my seniority went from 35 out of 70 to about fifth out of 40 <laughs> or 50. And that was very, very interesting because I ended up being the only guy that understood how the company functioned. <laughs> All right. So you were basically a lot into these risk models. Uh, what did you think of the actual risk models? Were they accurate? Were they like not accounting for certain things? Like how well did those things work? Man, so I don't want to say they're bullshit because they're not really bullshit, but they come with disclaimers. And the disclaimer is these models are great under normal market conditions. Mm. So, but under normal market conditions, you don't really have a huge need for these things. You really need them in catastrophic market conditions. Mm. So when 2008 hit, I mean, it was pretty unexpected considering the company that I was working for doing these models went under. So it mm. shows you, you know, what one irony of the situation because that company was Bear Stearns. And under normal market they work fairly well. Now, here's how they really work. So if you are a fund of fund and you have to choose which hedge funds to invest money, so let's say you are a manager of the, all the retirement money of the California Teachers Association, which is like the biggest retirement fund there is in America. It's like California and Texas. So it's called CalPERS. That's the California one. And you have to decide which hedge funds to invest in. So you need some kind of an idea of what these hedge funds are really invested in. So you want to invest in hedge funds that have some transparency into at least what they're invested in. So a company like ours would give you some of that transparency. You're not going to know which assets they're holding, but at least by using us as a middleman, you have an idea how much of that hedge fund is allocated towards equities, towards bonds, towards precious metals. How much are they in the futures market? How much are they in the plain in the currency market? And 
we do break down these portfolios in that way, and we do show you, you know, general risk analysis under normal market conditions, how risky they are. So you could make some assessments that way. Also, some, uh, so our main clients were these investors in hedge funds, and we were using the pressure of these hedge funds, sorry, the pressure of the fund of funds, getting the fund of funds to put pressure on these hedge funds to show us their month-end positions under NDAs in order for them to be comfortable giving these hedge funds money to invest. But for the hedge funds themselves, if it's a small hedge fund, they may not have the capital resources to hire an in-house risk analysis team. And if you have a risk manager at your hedge fund and the hedge fund has a dozen traders, it's hard for you to go through every position of every trader. So if you go through a company like ours, you can at least get this snapshot of all of your 12 or 20 traders to see how risky their positions are, at least against each other. So if all of a sudden one guy is five times riskier based on our models than the rest of the people at your fund, you may want to talk to him about what is he doing that's different than the other traders at the fund. So this sounds like a, a way to manage risk for Wall Street, and th this is the world that you were in. Um, but we still got something like 2008, which absolutely crushed a lot of a lot of companies. Obviously, Bear Stearns, where you used to work, and so on. <laughs> like, how effective is risk management if it can't? manage something like that, which, which happened, you know, I guess 13 years ago. Like, how effective is it if it didn't manage to mitigate that risk? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And that's because a lot of industries ended up in this group thing. Like, and I was at a conference somewhere and there was like three or four panelists. And you know how conferences are. Sometimes you get a bunch of competent people on the panel and sometimes you get them because they are the right gender you know so but in this <laughs> case you have like pretty competent people on the panel and the question was who do, what do you think was the biggest cause of the 2008 crisis and this was like in 2010 or 2011 and it was very interesting how each of the five people on the panel or four people on the panel gave a completely different answer <laughs> One guy blamed the rating agencies rating everything AAA because if a rating agency is rating something AAA, then that's part of your data set. So you're assuming that it's a AAA asset, like a AAA bond, but it's not. Mm. And another guy blamed, you know, government for, you know, pushing these things, for pushing home ownership and things like that, you know encouraging these loans. Another guy blamed something else. So there were multiple reasons. There was never a single catalyst. It's just eventually the real estate prices got too high and people just weren't willing to buy. And some people need to sell. And once prices started falling, some people started to wait and it just suddenly snowballed. So it caught a lot of people by surprise. And me personally, man, I actually should have never even gotten that job at Bear Stearns because prior to that, I, I was trading and I started trading on my own around, I don't know, 2003, 2004. And I was doing okay. I didn't have much money. I was, you know, 
out of grad school, just being a college adjunct professor. But I wanted to trade. So then I started trading full time. And I realized, you know, in late 2005, how insane the real estate market was. And I started shorting home builders and, you know, real estate, basically, in the market. Started mostly shorting the home builders. And I started just a year too early, and I ran out of money six months before the collapse. So, or six months before it would have been profitable, not the collapse yet. But basically, the peak in a lot of the stocks that I was shorting was summer of 2007, maybe even a little bit earlier. But I ran out of money in late 2006. And if I only had, you know, three months, three to four months more runway, those options that I kept buying puts and they kept expiring worthless because these home builders just kept rising and it made no sense to me. So I actually lost uh, too much. And then I'm like, you know what? I need to go just get a job on Wall Street. And I did. And that was the Bear Stearns job that ironically I lost like 13, 15 months into my job because of the real estate crash. (laughs) So I was just a little too early on that. And it's really important. Like you can be right, but your timing could be wrong. So that was, and I was doing fairly well before that, before I realized that, you know, I could have been one of the guys in the big short, making all the millions of dollars. But instead (laughs) I started shorting a little too early and I didn't have the kind of, you know, bags that uh, some of those hedge funds had to keep doing it. To keep, mm. you know, doubling down and doubling down. Uh, and then at those jobs at Bear Stearns and then JP Morgan, I had ridiculous trading restrictions. Uh, mm. So while I really wanted to get back into trading, it was very, very hard, besides the fact that I was really busy and I really wanted to make a career out of it. And so I didn't trade for a little while. And then my final job, one of the reasons why I took my last job was because that job had... Yeah, I should have probably tried to get a job at a hedge fund, but I really knew what I was doing in the risk modeling space. I was good at my job. Mm-hmm. And, but the last job I took had a different risk model profile, where in that job, we were building the risk model in-house, but we were giving that risk model to the funds, and the funds would run it on their end. So in my last Wall Street job, Because I did not have access to any of the hedge funds positions, there were no restrictions on my trading while I was employed at that company. So I took a lower salary in my last job in order to avoid all trading restrictions. And now I was able to work and trade restriction-free. And so that's what I was doing. And it wasn't easy because, you know, I'm sitting there during meetings and like, you know, on my phone under the table, like entering and exiting positions during the day because I kind of wished I worked in Asia because then I wouldn't get much sleep then. But at least then my trading wouldn't be conflicting with my workday. Mm. So makes sense. So that's what I was doing in my last few years. And I started doing very, very well with my strategies. I went back to options trading. And I was ready to quit my job and become a full-time trader once again. And this was like 2013, 2014, around the same time I started discovering Bitcoin. But I really don't like putting all my eggs in one basket. So I started diversifying. So in 2013, 
2013, when I was ready to quit, I decided to, you know, quit my job, but go into at least five things where any one of the five could make me good money. So one of those five was me going back to being a full-time trader. It's not easy, you know, like just quitting cold turkey with no money. You know, I kept trying to get laid off from these jobs because not the first <laughs> one because I was too young, but the rest of them, like I kept, I kept like, and there was like massive layoffs at one of them. And I even like begged my boss to put me on a layoff list and like 60% of my unit gets laid off, but not me. <laughs> like I really wanted to like, you know, get out of work, but I still wanted to get like six months of a paycheck, you know, for being unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> but it never, it never happened so and then when i did end up quitting i did a mistake of telling my boss that i was going to be quitting you know in three to four months to get a replacement and then they called me in like a week later and they're like you know it's obvious you're you're not really into this job so how about two weeks instead of six months so all of a sudden i'm like fuck i have no salary now <laughs> and uh but i was pretty ready for it uh, hmm. So I decided to hedge myself with five different things. One of those fives was going to be full-time trading, which I anticipated was going to be my main source of income. The other one was I was starting to become a little bit popular writing articles for Cointelegraph. I started doing some public speaking and I started becoming you know, a guest on a YouTube channel here and there. World Crypto Network was one of them. You were on there as well later, a little later on, Jimmy. So I really liked public speaking. So I did feel like I could one day make a career out of public speaking. So that was going to be, that was one of my passions. I really like public speaking and you do as well. So mm. becoming a, I guess what they now call an influencer, but I didn't know that term <laughs> at the time. So becoming an influencer with no idea how I was going to make money from being an influencer. But so that was one. Trading was two. I opened a physical business. I don't like to talk about what that business is, the physical business in New Jersey. It still exists and it never made me a dollar, but it cost me a lot. Uh, <laughs> but it was a risk. You know, it was a risk I took. Mm. It was a physical business, which I'll never do again. It was a partnership with someone that I'll never do again. Not even with that person, pretty much. I don't want to go into partnerships with anyone. Bad experience. So, physical business. And my dad told me not to open a physical business because back when I was in high school going into college, he had a physical business with a, with a single partner and it was a nightmare. Also was like mm. a store. Uh, mine is more in the service and health industry. So that was going to be one public speaking, trading, cryptocurrency. And, and I already forgot what the fifth one was, but I had a fifth plan, <laughs> which I may or may not have ever implemented. So I had like multiple things and trading was going okay but i just wasn't happy anymore i wanted to travel you know i was already in my 30s and i've bare and i've been like to what to maybe three or four countries in my life since i became an adult i was to a few i went to a few countries when i was younger when i was immigrating to america so that doesn't really count like if you're traveling before the age of 18 it doesn't really count right because you're traveling with your parents <laughs> so I wanted to see more of the world and I thought trading would do that for me, but I was just, you know, stuck at home managing positions, traveling and speaking and uh, doing YouTube. I guess you can separate the two. They're kind of independent. They kind of go together. 
It's more like one and a half. But I really started to enjoy that. The physical business just drained a lot of my money at the worst time. So I ended up quitting my job at the worst time. It was early 2015 and Bitcoin was in its very bear market. And it stayed in that bear market the rest of the year. So instead of having a nice, you know, $150,000 to $200,000 salary acquiring cheap Bitcoin, I, you know, basically had no choice but to actually use it because I had that physical business I kept trying to make work. And yeah, so some of it failed, some of it succeeded. Here I am. A lot of people know my name, a lot of followers. And teaching trading has been pretty fun. I'm slowly stepping back from that. I don't really teach that anymore. I have some videos from prior workshops and I can always go back to trading. That's not going to go anywhere. But right now I'm actually you know, enjoying traveling and speaking again. I really want to convert the podcast. I mean, we haven't done the news show in a while, but I really want to do start the understanding Bitcoin podcast, video podcast. Just did an episode with Simon from mempool.space. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught that. That was just yesterday, Jimmy. I don't know if you want to see it yet. <laughs> you want to catch that episode. So that was, I was really excited. And people were like, Tone, how much coffee did you drink before that podcast? And I really didn't. It was just that it's so repetitive looking at Bitcoin charts every day doing that podcast. And while that is bringing in revenue, because people do buy those trading courses, and that's what most people want to watch. When I don't do a show about the price of Bitcoin, I get half the views mm. or less. So that still brings in the eyeballs, that brings in the revenue. But I'm way more passionate about you know, doing shows, explaining what the mempool is. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do a great job at it, but I can ask the right questions of someone coming in that wrote the website, mempool.space. And, you know, educating people about how to set up a node, educating people how to set up a lightning node, educating people how to use lightning. You know, what are the best wallets? How to set up your wallets? I may do it. I may bring somebody on to do it. I may have, you know, do a joint podcast with yourself. I really want uh, Kiara Vickers on that podcast as well. She wrote the book, uh, Bitcoin Clarity. I thought it was an amazing book. So it's basically the Understanding Bitcoin Conference in podcast form to just educate people about Bitcoin itself and how to properly use it, how to use the privacy features. You know, how is liquid sidechain a competitor to the Cardanos and Ethereums of the world, things like that, you know, just for the hell of it, you know, bring someone on my podcast to help me launch, you know, the tone vase. I don't want to say scam coin because that would be bad. Like as a proof of concept, you know, hey, let's create a hundred tone vase coins and you can redeem each one of them for an hour of my time and somehow have a marketplace, you know, to see how much an hour of my time is worth. And see how that evolves as these coins get redeemed for an hour of my time. That is something we can do on top of the liquid sidechain. And I think that would be really interesting to see how that works. So this is the kind of podcast I really want to do. But, you know, it's easy. I can just have to decide and do it. But I'm being a little lazy about it. And I would have to give up a lot of my trading stuff. So maybe in the, going into next year, I'll be looking to make that transition. 
<laughs> All right. So you cover quite a bit there, but I do want to pull on some threads from earlier. So you talked about risk management as a, as a risk manager. You were talking about 2008. One of the people said that it was the credit rating agencies that were putting, making, you know, branding everything AAA when they really weren't. And that essentially ended up in your risk models. And you talked about how that would screw up the risk model because these agencies had rated certain securities as AAA where they really shouldn't have been. How much trust is necessary in these risk models on ratings agencies and other entities and stuff like that? Like, what was that like? And, you know, like, how do you mitigate for risk like that, that the, these people are lying? Well, with disclaimers, basically, it's a disclaimer that we do rely on, I mean, if we have to rate these things ourselves, then what's the point of the risk agencies? I mean, that's their expertise. Everyone has their own expertise. Our expertise is analyzing the risk of a portfolio, but the risk of each asset relies on several pieces of data. And one of those data is the consensus of the rating of that bond, for example. That's part of the data. The other part of the data is historical. But historical data is useless because, like everyone says, well, real estate prices never go down. So the history of real estate prices is they never go down. So uh, you do it with disclaimers saying that, you know, if there is a catastrophic event, then, you know, the model is not going to function as it should. The other interesting thing is part of the risk models that I didn't mention was the concept of stress testing which I was also involved in after the 2008 when we were when I was still doing a very similar job going into 2010 I had to come up with stress tests in case 2008 occurred again and obviously no bubble ever repeats itself exactly the same but we would have these stress tests because we now have all the data we have the data of what happened during to the financial markets during 9/11 we have the data what happened to the financial markets during the dot-com crash. So I'm responsible for selecting most optimal dates for start and end of a historical financial incident. Now, that incident could be to the upside, usually to the downside. And then we know what all the assets in the world did during those times. And we now replicate your current portfolio if that scenario was to repeat, for example, the 1987 crash where the stock market fell 23% in a single day, but other markets did crazy stuff as well. What did the dollar do that uh, during that you know, one week long stretch that included that catastrophic day? What did the, you know, the other currencies did? What did the mar bond market do that day? You know, how did the tech stocks perform that day versus, you know, uh, different sectors like the energy sector, the financial sector, you know, so other assets, you know, how did precious metals do during that week? And once you have all that data, you apply it to your current portfolio today. So you replicate your current portfolio with what happened in, during the 1987 crash. And that gives you a little bit of an idea of what will happen to your portfolio if the same identical event was to repeat. That, I think that mm -hmm. is somewhat useful. Unfortunately, the same exact event will never actually repeat.
<laughs> yeah, which brings up kind of like what what happened in 2008 and like how it sort of like changed a lot of things and you know more or less you know set a new normal uh, as the Fed started printing and so on. Can you talk a little bit more about you know how risk models kind of were partly responsible for getting us there like because they didn't see it coming and how that sort of changed after that period. Honestly, I don't think it changed that much because when I was doing the I was sitting at the same exact desk just had a different name on the paycheck instead of Bear Stearns it was suddenly JP Morgan and we were still doing the pretty much the same exact stuff in 2010 and 2011 but we just added, you know, five or six stress tests that had to do with the 2008 period so I had to pick <laughs> the dates and name the damn things. Other than that, not much changed. So you know, you just go on and you wait for the next bubble. It's, you know, everyone is going to get into a group thing because like during those times and you see it in the crypto space as well. See, what happens is countrywide starts, you remember countrywide, right? Yeah. 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 The big casualty. No, I said like, you're, if you remember countrywide, the big bank that went under and Wachovia went under, but I remember countrywide well. And Countrywide was like one of the first offenders. And Countrywide mm. started, you know, making a lot of money giving these high-risk loans with a high interest rate to basically homeless people to buy a home. And not homeless, but, you know, like taking advantage of people. And they started making a lot of money. And when they start making a lot of money, you know, other banks, what do the other banks do? They have to compete. They have to compete with them to also try to make a lot of money. And they see how these guys make the money, so they have to do the same. And mm. now you have two banks doing the same thing. And now they're becoming, their stock is going up, and your shareholders and your board are saying, well, what are they doing to make money? Why can't you do that? We're watching it right now with Bitcoin. Michael Saylor, Square, Elon, and what are the other companies saying? Well. We have to do the same because they're making the money. So it was the same thing back then. So now more banks start doing the same thing. And now suddenly one of the investment banks says, well, let's package this thing up. Let's minimize the risk. Let's pull all these you know, mortgages together. And then we sell that to you know, as a diversified portfolio to other investors. And now one investment bank starts making a bunch of money. So what did the other investment banks do? Well, we have to do the same thing. So you end up in this group thing and everyone has to do the same thing. Otherwise, you can be fired as a CEO. Now, we all are assuming this is a great thing for Bitcoin. I believe that it is, but it's also possible we're all in group think and every one <laughs> of these companies is going to buy Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin goes to a million dollars per Bitcoin. And then, I don't know, something catastrophic happens in Bitcoin and suddenly it goes from a million, you know, back down to our current price of 60,000 and it's a disaster on our hands. So that can certainly happen. So we don't know what the future is going to be, but we saw it in the ICO space. You know, mm. if your competitor is ICOing and suddenly has a billion dollars that they can spend, they will put your company out of business. 
So you are almost incentivized to take the same risk and ICO. Now, in the case of ICOs, the risk was mostly regulatory. Are you going to get away with it or not? Like it always bothered me how you have exchanges that were honest and never ICO'd. And I'm going to put, you know, maybe Coinbase in that example. Like as much as we, you know, give shit to Coinbase, they at least never had an ICO token. Bitstamp never had it. Kraken never had it. Gemini never had it. But look at Binance. I think it's unfair. I don't. I mean, an exchange doesn't need a token to function. Exchanges have been able to function for 300 years without a token. Like, why does Binance suddenly need their own token? Now, eventually, these exchanges go public on the stock market, but that comes with actual, you know, regulations and and stuff like that. But Binance just basically created a token and made money on printing this token, giving them a competitive advantage. And now they're trying to come up with more use cases for the token. They're building their decentralized, whatever the hell they're building to compete with Ethereum. But to me, this is a problem. And I know you hate regulation, Jimmy, but this is where, you know, (laughs) exchanges like Kraken and Coinbase and Gemini need to get together and like go to the regulators and say, hey, they have a competitive advantage because they launched this token that's obviously a security. But they're not registered as a security. So if you're not going to do anything about that, we're going to launch a token too. And this is where the problem comes in. Like you need an even playing field. And that's what happened in the ICO space. You know, it's hard to compete against the same company that does what you do that ICO'd and got like $300 million from the ICO with no one to answer to. Hmm. Yeah, so that whole sort of like groupthink thing that you were talking about, it does seem like it adds a lot more risk in a way that is not obvious because once one company is making money, then another company just sort of takes on the same profile because that's where, you know, they can make the most or where they can sort of copy the success or whatever. And that seems to be something that was missing from Wall Street, this idea, okay, maybe we shouldn't do this because there are all these risks, but there are people that are just sort of like, hey, we should make money however way we can. And if these guys are doing it, it's probably fine. Like That seems to be the mentality that leads to these crashes or these like giant events, even to some degree, like what we went through with COVID, it was just sort of like everyone had groupthink and you know every country around the world seems to have shut down in almost exactly the same manner because everyone else was doing it. How much of that is just sort of like natural to human nature and how much of that is something else? Yes, you are right. A lot of it is human nature, but I think the COVID situation is a little bit different. I think because of the COVID situation, the was fully government involved. It wasn't free market. Mm. It was the government. Mm. So in the case of COVID, I think a lot of it was just coerced and bribed Mm. into it and not free market thinking. I think there were, so so I wouldn't put COVID in that that scenario, Uh, but Mm. for a lot of the other stuff, yeah, it is human nature because when you see your neighbor buying a Lambo, you want to know why. And if he just bought his Lambo by buying into a scammy ICO, you're going to do the same. And eventually, 
you're going to get in at the wrong time. But again, going back to this group thing, in the current situation of corporations buying into Bitcoin, the scenario that I laid out earlier, it's possible that if all these companies are about to rush into Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price could drive up unsustainably high real fast. And if it does, I know Michael Saylor is always talking about how he's not going to sell, he's not going to sell. But if Bitcoin hits, you know, half a million dollars by June 30th, he's probably going to sell, right? Because he understands that this is unsustainable at this rate. Hmm. Yeah, that whole group thing could possibly harm Bitcoin. But what's your assessment of just sort of like the general risk management of, you know, worthiness of Bitcoin? Is that something that should be in a portfolio to help mitigate risk? Or is it a really risky asset? Like, I mean, I have a feeling I know the answer, but what's your assessment as a former risk manager of Bitcoin? Well, it's so two things can be true. There could be arbitrage in a system, while at the same time, the efficient market hypothesis from Eugene Fama that got him his, what do you call it, the economics Nobel Prize, they can both be true. People that arbitrage the market do make it more efficient. So there's also, you know, the models of the balanced and diversified portfolio. And Bitcoin is a new asset into the system. And this is what a lot of people missed in the fact that Bitcoin is an asset that's here to stay. And while the, it is a private asset that to me is very directionally correlated with the stock market, its amplitude is different and it has like its own cycles because of the halving. So adding Bitcoin into a portfolio, any portfolio will instantly help diversify that portfolio. And diversification is good. In the case of adding Bitcoin to a portfolio, now adding, creating a diversified portfolio of altcoins, I'm not a big fan of. And adding altcoins to your portfolio besides Bitcoin, I don't believe necessarily diversifies it because I don't consider other altcoins as, you know, stable assets. Like nobody adds penny stocks to a portfolio to help diversify it. That's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. You add stocks to make a more balanced portfolio. If you are a, an investor in stocks, you may want to invest in stocks of different sectors to help diversify your portfolio. But you're going to stick to you know, companies that are considered safe to be invested in completely. And you are trying to minimize you know, the Enrons of the world and the WorldComps of the world that were looked at as safe big companies that ended up suddenly going bankrupt, mostly because of shady practices. But I don't know anyone that adds penny stocks to help diversify a portfolio. And this is why I would never recommend adding altcoins to diversify a portfolio. Now, you can go ahead and trade those altcoins just like there are penny stock traders. There's nothing wrong with that. People do trade penny stocks. I don't like it when people, you know, pump penny stocks like well, you never heard of this company and the stock is worth 0.01 cent, but trust me, they do a better job in the oil space than ExxonMobil. 
like this is not what I want to hear, right? Like that's insane. Mm. If that was true, it wouldn't be, you know, worth less than a penny. So I would recommend it to balance a portfolio. But yes, I believe adding a Bitcoin to a portfolio will help diversify that portfolio and your confidence in how much Bitcoin to add to diversify that portfolio. I think whatever your comfort level is of having gold in a portfolio to help diversify it, at least you should be at least comfortable with half of that percentage into Bitcoin. This is for the most, you know, risk averse, safe, you know, manager of, let's say, a family office, for example. So if a family office says, you know what, we're going to have 50% allocation to stocks, let's say 20 or 30% allocation to bonds, maybe a little bit to foreign currencies, and we're comfortable with a 10% precious metal allocation. I'm not a fan of silver. I don't think silver diversifies your portfolio, just like Ethereum doesn't diversify. You know, if you add crypto, just add Bitcoin. If you're going to add precious metals, just to balance the portfolio, just add gold. But if you're comfortable with a 10% gold allocation, you should be comfortable with a 5% Bitcoin allocation. Now, you can take away, you can just add a 5% Bitcoin allocation and drop your gold down to nine. Maybe take 5% off of your stocks to go from 50 to 45, however you do it. But I think you should be comfortable with that. And as Bitcoin grows, you'll realize over time that Bitcoin is now suddenly 10 or 15% of that same portfolio. What do you do then? If you have not taken the time to study and understand what makes Bitcoin one of the more safer assets in the long term, and you know its risk reward is very, very good. But if you don't trust the underlying fundamentals of Bitcoin, lower the exposure back to 5%, every three to six months as that happens anytime it rises because it eventually rises. So I, of course, would recommend it simply because it is a brand new uncorrelated asset once you start to understand it. Yeah, some diversification as a risk management strategy definitely sounds reasonable. Let's switch things up a bit because you did mention your desire to educate people. And that's certainly something that you have some experience with being an adjunct, you know, post grad school and things like that. You certainly do a lot of that on YouTube with trading and, you know, you have your videos and so on. How did you get into education or doing all of that? And what do you think, you know, Bitcoiners need to learn more about? Ooh, so I think the most important thing Bitcoiners need to learn about is the importance of running your own node. Now, a lot of people will say running your own node is very, very important. And I've thought about this question a lot. And I wonder if you will disagree with me on this. I think the importance of understanding why you need to run your own node is more important than actually running your own node. They're both important. <laughs> they, they are. Mm. They are. They're both important. But understanding why you run your own node will make you understand why only Bitcoin is decentralized. Because in most of these other projects, you can't run your own node. Or it's incredibly challenging. And in some projects, yes, you can run your own node, but you realize that your node doesn't matter. 
because if the leader of that project wants to go in a different direction, then everyone will, if he says go left, you all go left. So understanding the importance of running your own node is probably the number one thing that will set you on a path to shitcoin minimalism. And Mm. that's really, really important. Now, if you really want to contribute and you really want to make sure that, you know, your Bitcoin is Bitcoin, of course, you run that node and you process your own transactions. But it's the understanding of why you need to do it is what sets you on the path to understanding what a blockchain really is. So that is, I believe, the most important thing that someone in the crypto space needs to understand is the importance of running the node. Well, I was thinking more from a risk management perspective, given sort of like your experience and stuff. But I mean, that's a good one too. But I mean, anything from sort of like your you know, expertise, you know, having been a risk manager and doing all of that, you already gave sort of like recommendations in terms of portfolio diversification and so on. But just in terms of managing risk, maybe running a full node or understanding Bitcoin as a part of it. But as an educator, what would you say is important for Bitcoiners to know? Oh, man, just in that case, I'm going to say be very careful with leverage. Be very careful with leverage because you have to, people have to realize that, I mean, a lot of people are trading at like 5x, 10x, 20x, but just think about it. When Bitcoin was in 2018 in that bear market, it had fallen from 20,000 down to 6,000. And if at 6,000, you were like, come on, it already fell so much. I'm just going to go all in on Bitcoin at 2x. It's just 2x. What can possibly go wrong? And then in one day, it goes from 6,000 to 3,000. Because at a 2x position, On exchanges that offer 100x, all you did was go 2x on your entire portfolio. And you were wiped out in a single day when it crashed from 6 to 3,000. Because a 50% drop will take you out on a 2x portfolio. So people grossly understand the dangers of leverage because. Once your portfolio gets down, once you lose, you know, 60, 70% of your portfolio, you're probably not recovering because you're now going to have to take even more risk to get back to break even. And that causes more and more mistakes. So when I teach my risk management class, I tell people, how much money would you withdraw from your bank to go to a casino for a week? Mm-hmm. And that's about how much you should start with your trading career. You're not going to take half of your money and go to a, you know, Caesar's Palace. No one's going to do that. So you shouldn't do that with your trading either. So try to only start your trading career with 10% of your liquid capital, not including your primary wealth. You should start your trading career with 10% of your liquid capital. And you should not risk more than 10% in any position. And that position 
should not lose you more than 20%. So that on any given trade, you should not lose more than 2% of your portfolio. No matter how confident you are in a trade, the worst case scenario should be losing 2%. So Tone, it would be very you know, untoward of me to, and like, I'd be screwing over my listeners if I didn't ask you about where you think Bitcoin is going over the next 12 months. So could you give us a prediction? Uh, Not necessarily price, but that would be nice too. But, you know, where do you think it's going? Sure. So I still believe that this bull cycle and the bull cycle isn't actually four years. The whole cycle is four years. The bull part of it is usually one to two years. And we're already, and I believe the, this bull cycle started right after the COVID crash. That's when I believe this bull market started. So it does have more time, probably has at least another year to go. And I believe that this bull cycle is going to be similar to the 2013 bull cycle. Now, the 2013 bull cycle only lasted pretty much one year. But in that one year, we had two bubbles, the Cyprus event bubble in April, of 2013, and then the big bubble with the Mount Gox collapse in November of 2013. And I think we're going to have something similar. It's going to be a little bit wider in time and obviously a little bit smaller in price appreciation or a lot smaller in price appreciation. So I am looking for the current upswing to take us into the 70s, maybe as high as 80s. But I do envision a top below 100,000 and before the summer. So we're talking April, May, June, before the official start of summer in late June. So I'm envisioning that top. That top will be followed by 30 to 40, maybe as high as a 50% correction. So I can see us falling from 80 down to 40, more likely back down to the $50,000 area. And some people may think that that was the big bubble and we're now you know, going in for that 80% correction, but I don't think we will. And then sometime this year, probably going into September or something, we're going to start that second bubble. And that second bubble, I think, will go above 150,000. How high is it going to go? It can go as high as a quarter million, but I'm going to stick for now. I'm looking at, I'm going to be on the low end of it around 150. When will that bubble end? I believe sometime next year, maybe as late as 2023. It's hard to say because we haven't finished the first one yet. But I am looking at this four-year bull cycle since the last halving to have that double bubble like the 2013 one instead of the one big one like 2017. Hmm. All right. Well, it's been really interesting talking risk management with you. Hopefully, my audience can understand that you are more than just a trader, right? Like you actually know some stuff from Wall Street and so on and have an idea of how all of that works. So thanks for being on. No, Jimmy, thank you for the podcast. And we got to get that news show back at least once a week. So I'm going to I'm going to try to get that together. Sounds good. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Tone can be found at @tonevase on Twitter and on 
ToneVase.com. Until next time, Fiat Delenda Est.